Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today I have on guest Pete Reese. He is a land flipper, and I just found his email reaching out to be a guest at the perfect time because you guys know that I have this Airstream that I've been looking for land to park on, and so I told Pete I'm going to selfishly use this hour to pick his brain for how I can use this, but hopefully we can all gain a little bit of insight on how we can use our short-term rental background for land flipping. Pete's company did $3.5 last year, and they're on track to hit $10 million this year. We haven't talked about land flipping yet on this show, and I think that he's the perfect guest to have on to teach us all about this. So welcome, Pete. Thank you, Natalie. That was quite the introduction. I appreciate it. Excited sure. to be here. All right. Could you tell us a bit about your story and just dive in how you found land flipping and tell us what this is? Like I said, this is a short-term rental show. And so this is a new concept you're introducing to this audience. Yeah. I didn't start out in any way, shape or form as an expert in land and have evolved to that over time. My previous experience, I've been in real estate for quite some time. In the early 2000s, we were actually when I say we, my wife and I, we were actually flipping homes. So we got involved with it. We saw those shows on H- HGTV and we got excited yes. about it. And we we're like, hey, we could do that too. So we started doing some flips on our own and they ended up going pretty well. I ended up getting my broker's license out here in California just because it gave me better access to deals. I could show the properties to myself. I could monitor the MLS and kind of jump on them when a deal came up because I was getting all my deals from the MLS. And that was about 2006 when I got my real estate broker's license. And then the market crashed out here in in 2008-ish. And at that time, I was like, flipping homes is not the best niche right now because the buyer pool kind of shrunk and there there wasn't any financing even available. Like loans that were in process and everything, they just were not getting funded. It was a crazy time. So So what I did was I shifted to focusing on doing what was working and that was listing REO properties for banks. So I was like, okay, this is going to be my focus. I'll use this license and I'll just reach out to as many banks as I can. And I tried to become the go-to agent in my area, broker in my area to do those bank owned properties. So that took a number of years was my focus completely, not the best business at all, (laughs) but (laughs) I was thankful to, to have business during the time when a lot of other people in real estate were struggling. Now, at that time, we got out of investing ourselves. And in hindsight, that was the time to jump in with both feet to get into real estate investing. Anything that was purchased at that time was just a major home run for anyone that still owns them right now. So yeah, after that, I transitioned to helping other investors find deals, got hooked up with some larger investment companies, and they were just buying as many properties as they can. And I knew what they were looking for and how to find them to deal. So I was just, I was staying really busy, just finding them as many deals as we could. 
And then after that, I got out of real estate for a number of years altogether, doing a business with my wife about blogging and travel blogging. It was a, an education online education business, and that was really flourishing, and we did really well with that. But I got the itch to get back into real estate and investing specifically, and I just started doing a lot of research and trying to figure out what niche I wanted to get into. I didn't really want to get it back into fixing and flipping because I knew how difficult that business is business is and with the logistics and the repairs and everything like that. And I just wasn't, didn't want to do that unless I had to. So I just stumbled into some stuff online about people that were doing land flipping. And I read stuff like, Hey, I bought this property for 10,000 and I sold it for 30,000 in 60 days. And it was like, that's pretty good. That's pretty good profit margin mm -hmm. to be doing that kind of lots of those type of deals like that. So I went all in, I just started researching it. I bought a training program from someone and I decided, hey, I can do this. This kind of matches with my skill set. So I just dove all in, went into the kind of land flipping space. And our first year ended up, now first year was 2021 is when we resold our first property, March of 2021. That first year ended up at about 1.2 million and some change and about a 50% gross profit margin. So on average, we were able to buy these properties and double our money after all commissions and closing costs. Mm -hmm. And then as far as the average hold time, we were only holding these properties for about 60 days on average. Wow. So, yeah. So 2020, 2021 was the first year for that. And then 2022, I was like, okay, I can really step this up. Ended up doing about 3.5 million in revenue and just shy of the 50% gross profit margin, 40 some percent. But then I'm the type that always likes to push things forward. So I've got 2023 here. I'm looking to do 10 million. So we're almost about to surpass our revenue from last year. And it's really building. Yeah. So that's where, we're at, where I'm at and how I got into all this stuff. But <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I know with traditional property flipping, like you talked about, is this is what you're on HGTV and they're getting in there and putting in the cheap like tile backsplashes and stuff. I feel like there's a reputation out there for house flippers that they're just like cutting corners to get it back on the market in 60 days and stuff. So how is it different when you're, what are you flipping when you're just buying a plot of, what are the improvements that you're making there? Yeah. Here's a business model that, that we follow and it's pretty simple. We buy the, all these properties off market, generate all of our deals with direct mail. So we're sending out actual offer letters to landowners. So we pull lists of vacant landowners. We send them letters in the mail that are actually offers, like a one-page purchase agreement. And we send out really large quantities of those. At this point, I'm sending out 100,000 letters, 100,000 offers per month. And then, yeah, so sometimes people respond and are really angry that I send them a low offer. Sometimes they respond and they're interested and doing something, but the price needs to be higher. So we'll take a look at it and see if we can negotiate. And sometimes they'll just sign the offer and mail it back to me in the mail. So it's a little bit of a crazy business that way. But uh, so what we do is then we just buy these properties. And for the most part, we just buy them cash ourselves. Okay. And then we close on them. And then there comes the point where we decide, are we going to do any sort of value add type things to these properties? Could be some of these properties will end up a lot splitting. So we'll take maybe a larger property, say it's a hundred acre property and split it up into five 20 acre parcels and then okay. sell them off individually. So we get a higher price per acre when we're able to resell. Sometimes we don't do anything to these properties though. We just bought it at a really good deal. We put it on the market with a 
local agent or broker, and then we resell those properties for a higher amount. And then sometimes we'll do some minor value add stuff. Could be like clearing brush. It could be doing something like a perk test. It could be getting a survey done. Any number of things like that, uh, minor value add stuff are pretty common. It really just depends on the property and what the situation is. But the, really the whole key is to buying it right. So then we have options in order to resell it. And our whole pitch to the property, we're the convenience buyer to the property owner. So we were like, hey, we can close fast and we can close with cash and we don't have to go through this extensive thing where they're jumping through a bunch of hoops in order to sell to us. So what are you looking for in the properties that you are trying to buy? Are you just finding like undeveloped land, like nothing with an actual built structure on it? You just want the acreage. Um, and then in terms of that, are you looking for something that has like power lines running through it or connection to water or septic or anything like that? Yeah. For the most part, we're buying rural vacant land, meaning okay. an hour to two out of major cities. And for the most part, our minimum is five acres at this point. And we'll go up to some areas are 10 acres minimum. So we like the larger properties and we'll go up as big as they, as we can get them. But most of these properties are, would be considered a potential home site or a potential subdivision play, like larger subdivision, not like residential, okay. like suburban lots or anything, but these would be like larger like mini ranches or something like that. Yeah, so that's our main criteria. We're not buying a lot of properties that have structures on them unless mm -hmm. it's an accident. We bought, ended up purchasing a bunch of properties in the past that have had an old rundown home on them or a barn or something like that. But that's not our intent generally, but we do buy those types of things from time to time. Okay. And then who is the buyer that you're targeting? So after you've come in and maybe done some value adds, maybe not, maybe divided it or whatever it is. Who are you then looking to buy? Is this like for commercial interests or you said possibly like ranch owners? Yeah. So it really depends. And we don't have a lot of direct contact with these end buyers because we list everything with a local land broker mm -hmm. agent. So we don't have direct contact in a lot of cases, but sometimes they are people looking to just buy a piece of property away from the city that they can get away from to use for recreational purposes or camp or pull their RV on it on the weekends. Sometimes they're looking at it as a potential home site, maybe immediately or potentially in the future. And then sometimes it's local people that, hey, you know, this I've been looking at this piece of land. I live down the street, but looking at this piece of land for 20 years and I see it's for sale now. And then they snap it up. And then we get kind of people that just accumulate land in those particular areas. It's a little bit of a phenomenon sometimes. So I'm curious, what is the reason that somebody would buy after you've purchased it first? Like, oh, if there's these sellers out there that are willing to give you an amazing deal, like what's to stop somebody from going and finding that deal? Why, why go through you, the middleman, and then pay that markup to you? Yeah, we find the deal. So these are all off market. They're not on the MLS or anything like that. So we're sending out all this outreach to people. They've owned this property. A lot of these people have owned these properties for quite some time. Maybe they inherited the property. Maybe they live out of the area. It's just a nuisance to them because they're paying property taxes. They've got to do certain maintenance things on them. That's the thing. We're finding the deal and then we're bringing it to the open market. So most people are not savvy enough to try to track down individual property owners. And it's a numbers game too. It's very rare that it's a very small percentage of people that actually respond to our offers and want to sell. So, it, you know, if an individual were to do that, they'd probably have to go through a lot of effort and 
may not end up with any sort of deal anyhow. So would you say this is not worth doing if you're going to be buying land that you see on the market? Like the markups are just not there to purchase it that way and then turn it around and try to resell. Like you really, what you're offering here is finding like those hidden gems that just are not on the market. Yeah, you have to have some sort of system in place. If you're going to do a business like this, like a land flipping business, you really need to put an off market lead generation system in place. That's the way to do it. I know of land investors and land flippers that will purchase larger tracts of properties. In certain areas, this works. Larger tracts of properties in, they might buy a 300 acre property and then they're able to split it into a bunch of 10 acre parcels. And then that those numbers work, even if they're paying retail for that 300 acre property, just because mm-hmm. you gain so much value by, by cutting them up and selling them off that way. That's a little bit of a different model. That's not really what I focus on most of the time, those type of properties. So it, it just depends on what your focus is. But for the most part, most land investors, land flippers have some sort of system in place where they're generating these deals on an ongoing basis. And ours is with direct mail. I'm curious, are you looking into like in unincorporated areas or anything like that or trying to avoid areas with regulation? Or I'm just trying to think of if you're trying to have that end buyer in mind and you're trying to position the land so it's attractive to someone at the end. Is there like anything that's going through your criteria that is, yes, this is in an area that is zoned for development or something like that? Like what kind of research are you doing on your end to make sure you're putting out offers on stuff that's sellable? Yeah. So what we do is more of a, I guess we could say more of a shotgun approach, meaning that we'll pull like a pretty broad list and you just never know what's going to come back from these things. It's super low percentage. So it's hard for us to really do a lot of research before we actually send out these offers. If we, if we are doing that type of thing and really spending a lot of time on really narrowing our list down, uh, we're going to have so much time into that. And then who knows if the people that we end up with are going to be interested in selling. So what happens is that we have a pretty broad list. We set broad criteria, like in a particular area, particular county in some state, I'll say, I'll pull a list of 10 acres plus of vacant land, no structures on the property. And you do some basic things like that. And then we'll scrub out sellers like owned by the city or owned by the railroad or the utility company, sellers that won't sell to us, basically. So I take those off of the list. And then that's pretty much our list. And then we'll we'll send that out and we'll see what comes back when people respond. That's when we could dig into these properties a little bit deeper. Now, sometimes, and a lot of times it happens where people will respond and it's not a property we want to buy, but maybe all swamp land, or it may be underwater, or it may be on the side of the mountain or something like that. And it's hard to filter out those properties when we're preparing our list. So at that point, we just have to let them know that we can't move forward with the property, you know, because of the issues we discovered. Do you have the rates? I don't know if you're willing to share this, but you said you're uh-huh. sending about 100,000 mailers out a month. How many are responding and how many of those are actually responding positively and not telling you like, screw you, this is too Yeah, Yeah, we get a lot of those. <laughs> and we've got a whole system in place. It's not like I'm answering the phones or anything. I've got a right. whole team. Plus, we use a call answering service, and their job is to do that initial screening. If someone calls and is upset or whatever, they just let them know that we're going to remove them from the list. And so they only pass on the people that are interested and motivated to sell. But but yeah, it's I forget. I was talking, I forget the other part of your question. Yeah. Do you know the numbers, if you're willing oh. to share this, of like how many responses you're getting from 100,000? Yeah, 000? yeah. That's a great question. I don't track the actual response rate because there's so many variables that kind of go into that. What I do track, though, 
is the cost per acquisition, cost per deal. So our cost per deal ends up averaging about $3,000 in mail costs for every deal that I get. Okay. And on average, so far this year, we've been averaging about $23,000 profit per deal. So okay. it definitely makes sense, dollars and cents wise there. There's a lot of variables that go into that response rate with this business, because if I were to put a higher offer percentage on the offers, like if, for instance, if I offered 40% of retail value, I would get a certain response rate. If I offered 70% of retail value, I would get a higher, much higher response rate. The amount of deals at the end of the day would probably be about the same. So that's why okay. I don't really kind of look at that. And each area is different too, as far as the response rate goes. Some areas are very responsive. Some areas are not as responsive at all. So that was, you just teed up my next question perfectly. Cause I wanted to know what are you, since you're sending out so many mailers, like a hundred, right. I just can't even wrap my head around yeah. that many. <laughs> How are you sending these with an actual, does every single mailer get like a numerical offer in it? Hi, we see this piece of land. Or is it just like, hey, we'd like to talk. We're interested in something in this range. Like how specific are each of these that are going out? How tailored and customized is each mailer? Yes, very specific. We've got on each. So we send out a two-page letter. First page is describing who we are, why we're contacting them, what we can do for them. Second page is an actual one-page purchase agreement. And then on the purchase agreement is their parcel number, the acreage, the actual offer price that we're willing to offer them. And then some basic terms of the agreement with their name and all that kind of stuff on there. But yeah, and what we do, basically how we generate those offer amounts is that we're looking at average values for a particular area. So generally countywide is how we do it. And we may look at that county and say, hey, retail value is probably about 10,000 an acre in this range. And then we might offer them 4,000 an acre. And then it's just a mail merge thing. We have a whole spreadsheet where we have our list and it's a multiplication thing. So if it's 10 acre mm-hmm. property and we're offering 4,000 acre, they get an offer of $40,000. Okay. Yeah. So that's how it works. And then the mailing service that we use, we send them the list, they merge everything together, send it all out. And thankfully I don't have to lick envelopes and, st- and put on stamps for a hundred thousand letters. So I'd like to know what your process once somebody does respond to you Or, okay, let's start here. If you never get a response from anybody, is that it? Do you guys keep trying to send something out once a month or some follow-up? Or is there like a limit that you've found is like after three attempts, we're done. We don't reach out anymore. No, I pretty much don't leave these people alone. No, I'm just joking. But in the areas that I like, we'll continue. We'll mail each those areas every three months or so. So I'll just continue to... So it's just okay. about timing sometimes yeah. with people. They may be getting these letters and they may be looking at it and say, maybe, yeah, maybe I'll call, maybe I'll call them one of these days and they just never get around to it. And then maybe when the situation becomes either urgent enough or important enough for them, they might pick up the phone and call. Yeah. So like to be yeah. kind of front and center for them when they're ready. Yeah, it's true. I think about my own like buying habits and we get mailers all the time from construction companies and stuff. And I used to save a lot of them like pest control and landscaping and be like, I don't need it now, but I will eventually. And then I would just toss the papers. And when it was time that I needed that service, it's like whoever's mail ended up that day. Like even if I had been saving a mailer, if I tossed it, I forgot about it. It's really whoever, whoever showed up at my door that day when I needed it, like that's who got the business. So yeah, I guess you just have to stay on top of it. Once you do have the people who reach out, I'd like to know the 
process here. So let's say somebody comes out and they're like, this screw you, this is way too low. Do you immediately try to counter offer? Do you look into the land and see, is it worth paying more or are you just, okay, we burned that bridge, we're done? It depends. Sometimes people, we get these type of responses where people are like, oh, I'm never selling my land. And they're just angry that I even <laughs> sent them a letter in the mail. <laughs> Some people are like, I'd sell, but your price was too low. So in okay. those type of situations, we will definitely look at the property and see what we can do because these are just averages. There's no way for us to get any deeper than that. And the crazy thing about land is each piece of land is different. And even if there's a 10 acre property, same street, those three 10 acre properties could have wildly different values. One might be all farmland mm. and have a certain value. One might be all swamp and have a certain value. One might be all woodland and have a certain value. There's no way to tell that when we're building our list. So when they call and there's any sort of interest in selling, we'll dig into it and see what we think it's worth and what we could pay for it. We'll let them know. And if there's a deal to be worked out, then we'll definitely work it out. And on the other side, sometimes we get people that want to sell. And when we look at the property specifically, we were too high on the price for whatever reason. Maybe mm. it, it's got some sort of issue and that makes it below average, but we are still interested in buying it if the price is right. So in those type of situations, we just explain to them why. And these people know generally that their property has this issue or you know, those types of things. And then we just see if we can put together a deal. If we can, great. If we can't, no harm, no foul. Yeah. So that's good. We, I have a kind of process that, so people could either call in, they could send us mail, they could email or text us, any of these types of things. So if they're calling and they, there's no motivation, they just want to complain, they get filtered out right away. If there is motivation at some price, then they get passed on to my team. And I've got an acquisition side of my team. I've got a couple of acquisition managers and their job is to either communicate with people on the phone or by text, by email, whatever the case is. I've also got an analyst that looks at all these deals that come in and decides, is this a property that we want to pursue? Is it, and what about the price? Are we right on with the price? Do we, can we go up higher if we need to, or are we too high? So they'll determine that thing, that side of things. And then the acquisition managers, their job is to just get these properties under contract. And as soon as we get the properties under contract, then it sets off a whole process of due diligence Generally, generally the process takes about 30 days, but we're always purchasing these properties through an attorney, a title company, or escrow company, depending on what the state is. And we're doing a whole due diligence process, like we're ordering for a photographer to go out to the property, take on the ground photos and drone videos and all that stuff. We're also getting broker opinion, local broker opinion. We're getting information from the local building department, like all the we're trying to buy properties that are buildable and we're trying to determine if it's buildable. And then, so we go through a whole list of questions with them. We find out about utility availability. So the, all these different things. And then when the title report comes back, we review the title report to make sure there are no issues on the title report that were unforeseen. And then that all comes together and all checks out. Everything's good. No red flags. We'll close on it and then go from there. I'm curious. I asked you what would be the motivation for a buyer to buy through you. What about on the flip side? Why would a seller want to go through a service like yours rather than once you've planted the seed, maybe they weren't thinking about selling and now they're like, maybe we should. Why not them just put it on the market? Yeah, a great question. And we're not for everybody. Mm -hmm. We're obviously not going to pay top dollar, but we are 
the easiest buyer that they're ever going to deal with. They don't have to go through the process of listing with a broker and doing all this prep in order to get things property ready to list. And generally it's a very quick process with land. They list with a broker. A lot of times if they're not listing aggressively, uh, these properties sit in the market sometimes. And a lot of them have been through that. They've listed with the broker, not able to sell it because they were probably listed too high mm-hmm. and the property sits for a year. They didn't sell. They get discouraged. Maybe a year or two goes by, they get a letter from us. They're like, I really want to sell that property. These people want to buy it. I don't really care as much as about the price. I just don't want to pay these property taxes. I'm just like Mm -hmm. done with it. So that happens a lot, but we're a convenience buyer. It's like when you have a car and you're going to buy a new car and you've got this trade in, are you going to take the effort to sell it on your own and get a higher price dealing with individual seller, individual buyers or listening on Craigslist, whatever you have to do? Or are you going to just trade it in at the dealership? It's the easy thing to do. You're not getting top dollar that way, but it's really the easiest way to do the transaction. That's that's an analogy I like to make. We're the convenience buyer. We're quick and easy and uh, no drama involved, basically. Sure. I'd also like to know, have you found, does it get easier to sell the properties the longer you've been doing this? I'm just imagining, do you have a list of buyers now that are counting on you guys to bring deals forward or is every piece of land that you flip just it's a good fit for a brand new person you've never worked with before yeah so we don't we don't typically do have a buyer's list or do any sort of that front end side of things but what along those lines that we really try to build relationships with great brokers and agents in the areas that we deal with so the brokers and agents that we deal with those are really key to our business because they're helping us out with the opinions and everything, but they've got, they handled that side of things. Like they collect the buyer's list. Mm-hmm. They network with other brokers and things that may have, may have buyers looking for those particular p- types of properties. Sometimes they'll, when they know a property's closing, they'll be emailing their either people that, that are potentially interested in that type of property. So we'll get deals locked up pretty quickly sometimes just because of that. But when we find good agents and brokers, it's like gold for us because I'm sitting here in California and we're buying properties all over the United States. It's mm-hmm. really hard to, and each market is different too. So yeah. having those local agents and brokers that can give us the local knowledge, they have their buyers list, they have their system to resell these properties. The good ones do at least, but it's kind of gold for us. So we just leverage them and let them handle that whole side of things. Sure. Okay. I think my last question for you is a selfish one, but what have you found is the best like land to buy from like an appreciation standpoint or value wise? I know you touched on like woodland areas, farmland, swamps, things zoned for different stuff. Like I'm somebody who's interested in buying land. So what would you say is just like a smart investment route for someone like me to look for? Yeah, I guess it depends what your end use for the property would be. I think you mentioned that you looking for a property where you would put some airstreams on that or something like Mm -hmm. that. If I was going to be buying something like that myself, I would be looking for something maybe an hour to an hour, hour and a half out of a major city. I would be looking for something not that far off, off a somewhat main road. I would be looking for something where there's either no zoning or the zoning is favorable that you're not going to run into problems doing something like that. I'd be looking for something where you could install the, if you had to put in any infrastructure, like a septic system or power mm-hmm. or anything like that, I'd be looking for something that had that availability for that. But, and then I guess the last thing would be you want like a nice setting, the kind of the intangible things. Like when you walk onto a property, is it nice? There's lots of nice trees. Is it gentle slopes? Is it 
is it just a nice property when you walk on it is is it like yeah. oh i'm glad to be here or this place is a dump is it would you say it's worth it for someone like me i have no experience doing what you do would it be worth it for me to try to like pursue one of these off-market deals or is it just so much work to learn that side of things is it better to just if you're just like a one-time investor trying to find a mm. good piece of land to just find something on the market yeah i mean it's it's probably Unless you have something like particular in particular targeted of particular properties, in those cases, I think it's it's definitely worth sending out some specialized type of marketing to those people. Maybe you had a maybe you just looked at uh, on PropStream or something like that, and you found twenty parcels that you think would work. What I would do in a situation like that, I would craft up a custom letter. I would do it like a FedEx to each one of them because the FedEx is definitely get open. They cost more. But you can they have a FedEx. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they have. Yeah, I know they have a FedEx two day one, which is like seven or eight bucks if you have an account with them, but it looks okay. like a regular overnight express one. So I would just send out those 20 and then see what happens. I think you'd get a pretty good response rate on that. Now, yeah. you may not be able to buy for 50 cents on the dollar, but you may be able to buy for 70 cents on the dollar, 70% of retail, which would be really good, which would be a really good thing as well. So yeah, I, I would definitely wouldn't dismiss that. I would think off-market deals sometimes are the way to go. I wouldn't dismiss on-market stuff either. I would also talk to some of the local land brokers or land agents that are doing a lot of business and just say, hey, here's what I'm looking for. If you get anything, we can do it before it even goes on the market, that type of thing. Yeah, interesting. I know that you're coming from a different like business model than me or my listeners have. We're really interested in short-term rentals and your land, and I know you can sell it for different purposes commercial or apartment developments or something like that. But I think you gave a lot to think about. I can imagine if somebody wants to do a really cool campground or something like this is a whole different world of doing this instead of pursuing single family homes or something like that for short term rental. So if people have more questions about land or anything or maybe how to get on Maybe somebody has a piece of land that they're wanting to sell or something. If any, if people want to connect with you for any reason, how can they? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, best way would be to, I just, at the beginning of this year, I launched a land flipping community. So we're really trying to build that up and it's really, really getting quite active and a lot of fun. It's, you can find that at landconquest.com. And I've got a training program, which is going to be out within a week or two. That's going to be completely free for anyone that's interested in the land flipping model. But in that community, I would definitely suggest going there. And if you're looking for a piece of land or something like that, it's all community of land flippers. So maybe you could post in there and you might you might be surprised in what what pops up. Yeah. As a buyer or seller, I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of deals being talked about there. Yeah, there's lots of deals. And the interesting thing is, too, there's people that will fund projects and things like that in there. So we've got a lot of those investor type people in the community as well. It's, a, it's an interesting place to come together if you're interested in doing any deals in the land space. So I bought one property one time that was it was 50 acre, 58 acre property. And I started going down the road of doing like a little tiny home community on it. So started doing yeah, all the research and everything. And I thought that would be really cool. But then when I had someone that gave us an offer on the property. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'll just let it go. But I'm always looking that for was, those too. <laughs> that was actually one of my questions for you. Has there been a piece of land that you've come across that you're like, this is too good. I can't turn around and flip it. But I don't know. That's just not your business model. So maybe yeah. it's just not worth I it. I look anymore. at a lot of them like that and I'm like, oh, I should just keep this one. <laughs> and I think about ones that I've sold like that. But I've got a really, I would be a huge collector of these properties if I decide to start doing that. Maybe at some point I'll start yeah. cherry picking some stuff, but. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I feel like once you open the gates of holding on to a few, it'd be so hard to <laughs> start yeah. saying no. Especially if they were in my area, that would make things a lot tougher. Most of these are on the other end of the country. So <laughs> yeah, so I never see yeah. them. Actually, on that, I know I said that we were going to wrap up, but that just prompted one more question from me. What are your goals with the business? It sounds like you guys are growing exponentially. Are you just really focused on cash flow right now? Or will there be a point where you just want to have some buy and hold investments for all of this? I'm just kind of curious what the plan is for the company. It's such fast growth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. So the flip side of the land flipping side of things, it's it's like an all, like you said, it's like an all cash type business. There's no real tax incentives. We're not holding any of these properties. I mean, we're yeah. generally holding these properties 60 to 90 days on average. So it's a cash generating business and it generates a lot of cash. But in order to offset that, I need to buy long-term properties in order to get like accelerated depreciation and offset those tax liabilities. So right. we have been buying those type of longer term buy and hold type properties. We bought okay. a motel not a motel, but more of a cabin type property. It has 18 little cabins on that. And yeah, so we we bought that kind of as offset taxes. We bought duplexes and some other stuff as as well that are the longer term side. So I can look at this, like generate as much cash as we can, and then trying to figure out how much other stuff I need to buy in order to offset the tax liabilities. And then that's the buy and hold type thing. But I love love the short term (laughs) rental space because I wanted to do that kind of with those cabins that we bought, but just haven't haven't seen that project through yet it's just a lot it needs a lot of work and everything like that but where are they it's in wisconsin oh wisconsin okay yeah so familiar it's a place called baraboo wisconsin which is just outside of wisconsin dells yeah really cool property was built in the 40s i think it was and had duplex house on that and a bunch of mini cabins they just need a lot of work Yeah, yeah so i bought it as a distressed thing And my biggest challenge on that property, and maybe you run into this, is finding the right contractors. So it's just like so. I didn't even tell you this, Pete, but I actually I host all my short term rentals are in Big Bear, and they're also like small little lodges. And (laughs) yeah, I know Big Bear well. I know the struggle. Mountain towns. That is the one thing. The when it's high season, the rates you get are insane. But finding people to work and finding reliable work in those kinds of towns is so difficult. Yeah. If you need any help with that project, I don't have experience in Wisconsin, but I would love to offer any insight about managing cabins and that's the world I know. So, Hey, it's, it's maybe a potential good collaboration because I, it's been on the back burner. I actually bought this property in the end of 2021. So I've been sitting on it for about a year and a half. We've been getting quotes and bids and everything like that. So we just started doing some of the renovations, some of the electrical work and plumbing is next and things like that but mm-hmm. it's got great potential it's just i haven't had the time to really focus on it <laughs> so i'm open to anything like that okay uh, we need yeah. a follow-up discussion on how yes. we can work together on this i would love to see it and see design ideas and stuff to yeah. make that a killer property <laughs> yeah yeah it has a lot of potential it's a great tourist town there, during the summer it's just like insane but the interesting thing I think too is there's not a lot of lodging for the winter areas for the mm-hmm. winter there and there's a lot of outdoor recreational stuff that happens in that area like snowmobiling and yeah. all kinds and skiing even and lots of things but there's not a lot of lodging for that area so I think there's potential on that side too but Cool. Very cool. Pete, thank you so much. I'm going to link your community and ways to connect with you below. I'm really excited for that free training. I think I'm going to tune into that. You really piqued my interest with this whole topic. So thank you so much. And yeah, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Natalie. Appreciate it. 
And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, this post made me so sad and angry. I will just read this to you. This is what a host posted in a Facebook group. I want my guests to leave. He asked to check in early. I told him okay, but I would be cleaning and organizing. He took a shower, which made me feel uncomfortable, especially because he didn't close the door. He exposed himself several times, made me very uncomfortable. He made it very clear that he was interested in me. The reason I am so upset is because I know we talk a lot as hosts about how to have good hospitality and treat your guests well. And I'm a very big believer, like if they complain about something, give them the benefit of the doubt, hear them out before you assume it's a scam or something. In this case, it makes me so sad that this host decided to post about this on Facebook and like ask for help. Call the damn police. This has nothing to do with like, I let them check in early. What do I do? How do I salvage the review? How do I make sure that everything's okay? This is so inappropriate. This is so inappropriate. You are in your home as a host that you are trying to make a nice space for other people and a guest comes in and does this, this is so inappropriate and it just genuinely makes me sad that this host felt like they couldn't just call the police and get this, get this creep arrested. I don't know. I just, this one like made me just honestly so angry. Like I'm not upset with the host. I feel like they were just in a state of shock and it actually looks like this was a brand new host. This was one of their first times hosting and I can see that just in the shock, they wanted to make sure they did things right. But it just makes me sad that it seems like common sense, like critical thinking just left left the room. You need to call the police. You need to call the police and literally file. <laughs> this is sexual assault. This is sexual assault. That's what it is. This I, I don't give a shit about retaining a five-star review, about keeping your guest, about making sure that it's one of your first guests and you've done everything right and you get super host next quarter. No, you need to call the police and stand up for yourself. So the Airbnb hole here who exposed their freaking a-hole is clearly this guest. I think this is so inappropriate and so wrong to do this. Hosts, be careful. Ultimately, this one is just a reminder. Yes, we want to be hospitable and do all the things and get the good reviews and have guests coming back and have a wonderful listing that's ranked high in search rankings. You need to look out for yourself. Don't be alone in your listing, cleaning it, tidying things up, especially, I'm going to say, if you are female and more vulnerable. Sexual assault can obviously happen to anyone, but please be careful. And if you are somewhere like you host in a cabin where there's not a lot of neighbors around, please be careful going to your property alone. Remember, change your code between every single guest. This isn't just for guest safety. It's for your own. Don't use a lockbox with a code that's being repeated over and over. Have a ring camera on the front porch. Don't lose your common sense and basic instincts for safety and security because you're pursuing how to be a good host. It just makes me so sad genuinely so sad that this host was in this situation and thought to post on Facebook instead of straight up calling 911. Stay safe out there. Lock the door while you are cleaning. Stay safe. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. 
so you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye!